Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. Uh, John 13, if we can turn there, please. That would be great. We bought this, um, this game for Caden, our son, our eight-year-old son at Christmas. I don't know if you've seen some of these before. It's called Simon. Basically, it's a game that uh, tells you, it gives you a sequence of lights and sounds, and then it's your job to, to kind of follow one and try and build up the longest sequence. So something like this. Simple now. Just wait. This is, this has first become a family favorite for us. This is no longer Caden's game. This is, this is our game. Because in our fairly competitive family, what we've wanted to do is be the champion. Be the one that strings together the longest sequence. And, uh, and the pressure is insurmountable at times. When you've got uh, three kids looking at you and watching your every move as you try and work your way through the sequence. And you know that the further along you go, the pressure begins to build because you're, you're one step closer to, to stringing together the longest sequence. But you're also just one simple step away from messing it all up and having to start again. And no one else is allowed to help. I heard a couple people say hesitation and a few other comments, or no, he's wrong. No one's allowed to help because if you can't do this yourself, then your record doesn't stand. That's the challenge in the Sudworth family. So if you want to come and challenge us, my record is 75. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. But you're welcome to come and challenge us. There are, there are good things that God blesses us with. There are, there are things that God pours into our life, his, his favor and his and his goodness, dreams and desires and hopes that we have. Desires that I'm sure every single one of us here have to, to leave some kind of a mark on the world, can, kind of make some kind of an impact, which is good in its, in its purest form. It's good and right for us to want to leave an impact on the world. Uh, perhaps success at work, perhaps favor in a relationship, perhaps seeing your children uh, are blessed and, 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 and becoming successful in, in, in some way. You know, perhaps even the call of God on our lives, those are good things. Our, our desire to, to want God to use us and to make an impact in the world. The problem with good things is when they start to inch their way into the center of our lives. And those good things, when that happens, when those good things that God blesses us with takes up residence in the center of our hearts and they become ultimate things, I want to suggest that the way we live starts to mimic this game. We have this incredible desire to want to achieve. We feel like the only way to succeed is to, is, to, is to kind of measure ourselves up to the world around us. How do I compare to somebody else? Or how do I look in the eyes of somebody else? And, and in order to, to, to be impressive, you have to do one step more than someone else. 
The problem is that whatever that it is, whatever that thing is that has crept its way into the center of your heart, the more you, you, you need it to affirm who you are, the more you desire it, the, the pressure becomes almost oppressive. Trying to get to that place of finally obtaining rest or recognition. But then even if you're able to achieve it, like maybe achieve the record of the longest sequence, it's the pressure to maintain it that starts to become so challenging. And our lives, friends, don't start out that way. Just like this game is fairly innocuous in the beginning. I mean, it's really easy to string together a sequence of two or three lights and sounds. Our lives don't start out with this pursuit of, of, of greatness and, and, and trying to be compared to others. But because we live in a world that so defines greatness that way, if we don't guard our hearts, we very quickly start to need things or, or, or achievements, or successes, or, or be viewed in the right way by others in order to feel like we've achieved greatness in some way, shape, or form. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is a passage where Jesus completely turns greatness on its head and redefines it totally. Psalm 24 is a, is a psalm that David writes, and in verse 8, he asks this Really simple yet profound question. A question which the disciples have been wrestling with from the moment they started walking with Jesus. And the question is this, who is this king of glory? And today what we're going to learn is this, king of glory is the one who comes to serve. Jesus comes to serve. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 13 is the passage that we're going to be looking at, the first 17 verses. And what I want to do is is not read the entire passage, but just walk our way slowly through the text pausing every now and then to make a few comments. There's going to be lots of scripture reading today because I just really feel that God wants to um, affirm uh, uh, what he's already done so far this morning. Just the song selection by Nate and Nancy was quite incredible. I felt like every song had some role and and some part to reinforce the message that I wanted to share this morning. Verse 1, John starts off in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. This verse 1 is not only the introduction to our particular passage that we're going to be looking at today, the washing of the disciples' feet, but it is also the introduction to the, to the next five chapters. And it marks a very significant transition in John's gospel. The first 12 chapters, John has, has kind of sped us through these incredible encounters that Jesus has had with the world around him and, and the contentious reaction that, that has arisen amongst the Jewish um, leaders at the fact of seeing Jesus minister to the world. But here in, in John 13, John pauses and slows the action down considerably. And what he does is takes five chapters to record the 24-hour period just prior to Jesus' death, or his arrest in, verse eight, in, in chapter 18, and then his death. It's a single scene that we're going to look at today, which is the, the focus of my sermon, this washing of the disciples' feet. But the rest of that section, the rest of those five chapters is what is known as Jesus's farewell address. During that time, Jesus, uh, he firstly predicts his betrayal and, uh, and Peter's denial. He teaches the disciples that by knowing him, they will be able to know the Father. That's the emphasis that we've given to this particular series. He promises the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, and he explains the work of the Spirit. He describes himself as the vine and his father as the gardener. And then in John 17, John records this incredible prayer that Jesus lifts up to his Father. John 17 verse 1 starts off, Father, the hour has come. 
The hour has come. And that's exactly what John is saying here in verse 1 of, of chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And so just before Jesus' death, hours before Jesus is about to be tortured and crucified on the cross, remarkably, his thoughts are not with what he has to face, but his thoughts are with wanting to prepare his disciples for what's about to happen. Verse 1 continues, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some translations say that he loved them to the full extent or to the utmost. Not only did Jesus' love towards his disciples never waver, but his love for them was totally comprehensive and utterly unconditional. James spoke this morning about the, the fact that some of us here might be questioning the love of God. And that's the very point I felt like God wanted to emphasize in this little uh, uh, part of, of, of verse 1. This side of eternity, friends, we are always going to be faced with questions that sometimes can't be answered. They'll only be answered one day when we stand before Jesus and get to see our lives in the full extent of, of eternity. But can I suggest to you this morning that one question has been answered categorically? And that question is, does God love you? Does God love me? I want to say, absolutely yes. That question has been answered. In John chapter 15, a few verses later, Jesus will say this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one of his friends. John would say later in, what, in, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. I want to suggest that is a terribly anemic translation of, the original, of, of John's original intent. The King James Version, which has a great flair for the dramatic, says this, Behold, look and see, behold, what manner of love the Father has has." The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What John is trying to emphasize is the love of God is, is completely otherworldly. It's like nothing we can experience here on this earth with love from one another. It's completely otherworldly. We had the joy of celebrating Nancy's birthday the other night. We went to Uncle Julio's and, uh, uh, and my wife ordered fish tacos from Uncle Julio's. And they were good. They were good fish tacos. But I've been to Ensenada in Mexico, on, on the coast, and those fish tacos are otherworldly. <laughs> Uncle Julio's good, Ensenada fish tacos, completely otherworldly. That's what John is trying to get at when he says, Behold, look and see, what kind of love is this? This is love that I have, haven't experienced anywhere else. God loves you and me. Settle that. Jesus loves us. To the very end. Verse 2 continues. It says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The discussion around Judas's role and, and whether this was predestined or whatever, that's a, it's a worthy conversation to have. But can I say it's not a conversation that I want to explore right now. It's not a topic that we have time to explore right now. Other than to say this, Jesus never betrayed Judas. Jesus, in fact, was working until the very end to offer a way out for Judas. It was Judas who chose to betray, to betray and to give up Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father 
had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. Jesus was, was fully aware of, of what was going on. He understood everything that was happening. He knew that the cross was about to happen. He knew what was going on in Judas's heart. Most importantly, he understood who he was and is as Lord and, and King over all. Not just Lord of salvation, but Lord of, 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 of all eternity. The King of God's kingdom. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Jesus knew that He is Lord of all. So I want you to picture the scene. The devil is at work, and Jesus is fully understanding of His authority and His position and His power. I'm a little, to be honest, a little surprised that Jesus didn't just do a quick Clark Kent. You know, jump into the telephone booth, put on his Superman suit, jump out as Lord of all, zap the devil with a lightning bolt out of his forefinger, rescue Judas and put him on the straight and narrow and get carried out on the shoulders of his disciples because he saved the day. No, as Lord of all, Jesus chooses to stoop down and to wash the feet of his disciples. Even the one who was just about to stab him in the back. You see, friends, the issue at hand here actually is an issue of defining greatness. What is considered to be great? What is considered to be successful? What is considered to be most valued? Luke chapter 22 describes the same passage that John is describing before us. And in Luke 22, Luke gives us an insight into an argument that broke out amongst the disciples while all of this was going on. It says in Luke 22 that a dispute broke out among the disciples over which of them was to be considered to be the greatest. We've heard this all before, haven't we, in our series through John? We've, we've seen this all before. The disciples, uh, yes, in, in one sense, getting it right that they understood that Jesus is and was to be king. But they so limited the, the, the extent of his reign. They thought that Jesus was coming back to be a political ruler, to rescue the nation of Israel from, from Roman rule. And along with Jesus being kind of brought into power, they thought, they assumed that they, along behind and, 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 and along with Jesus, the disciples would be thrust into positions of prominence. And so they're beginning to ask the question, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to serve in Jesus' inner circle? Who's going to be the one that he is going to rely on, on his right-hand man? Who's going to be most favored? Who's going to be most honored? Who's going to get the fancy title? And all the time, friends, this was in just in complete, shocking almost contrast to what the kingdom of God describes or defines as greatness and as success. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus launched his ministry, he made it very clear what he understood as success and greatness to be. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are the contrite. Because yours is the kingdom of God. We love to talk about the kingdom of God at this church, and that's a, it's a good topic. It's a right topic to talk about. We, we, we all want to experience more of the kingdom of God. I want to say, friends, if you want to experience more of the kingdom of God, the, the posture, the, 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 the heart attitude that we should bring is a heart attitude of humility 
It's a heart attitude of brokenness. It's a heart attitude of, Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, would you be so gracious as to use me? That's the posture that Jesus is wanting us to have. We never outgrow brokenness, friends. We never outgrow humility. We never outgrow the need for God's grace to be poured out on our lives. We never mature to the point where we don't need the mercy or the favor or the blessing or the hand of God upon us. David writes in Psalm 51, that great psalm, just as, as he's reflecting on, on, on the reality of his sin, the, the, the adultery that he that he caused or committed, uh, just reflecting on, on that sin. Uh, Psalm 51, he writes, and we know at the end of Psalm 51, he said, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, is the sacrifice that you desire. But I just love how he starts Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. How or why? According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. I want to suggest, friends, that God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness floods or fills a heart that is broken and contrite and humble. Self-righteousness, friends, and I'm going to get to this towards the end of my sermon, but self-righteousness stops and limits the ability for God to be able to work into our hearts. This view of greatness that Jesus is about to show his disciples is so completely inside out. It's so completely back to front. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to find happiness, invest in the happiness of others. You want to be honored? Make sure that you're setting up others for honor and success. You want to live in the blessing and the favor of God? Well, make sure that you bless and extend your favor onto other people. Greatness comes by serving. And it was Jesus himself who had to choose this way. Jesus himself had to choose humility. Jesus himself had to choose brokenness. Jesus himself had to say, I am prepared to, to pay the price. I am prepared to, to take the hit. I'm prepared to, to, to take the knock, as it were, in order for us to walk into the freedom and fullness that comes by believing him as Lord and Savior. Philippians chapter 2 describes that Jesus being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want to use a, a football game to kind of illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, um, Imagine, let's, let's all hope that, that the Bears have a great off-season, and uh, they actually put themselves in a position to possibly win a game next year. So imagine that, and imagine, imagine perhaps unsurprisingly, that, that, that they're down by five points with a few seconds to go towards the end of the game. And, and Jay Cutler, who probably will still be under center, um, is, is taking the snap. Five, you know, five or seven or ten seconds to go, five points down. And he takes the snap, and he, he takes a few steps back. He's right-handed, I'm left. He takes a few steps back, and he looks, and he sees a receiver off to his left about to break open. But not right now. The receiver will only become open in about two or three seconds. So he's got to wait. He's got to stay in the pocket. He's got to hold that place. He's got to be prepared even to take the hit, because coming from his left is a defensive end who's, who's managed to, to shimmy his way around one of the offensive line, and he is heading straight at him. 
What, what, what's going on here? I mean, what's happening? Is, is Jay Cutler going to be able to stay in the pocket and take that hit? That, that offensive lineman is coming at him. Sorry, that defensive lineman's coming at him. And, and he's going to hit him at the exact same time as he needs to release the ball. Why? why? What's happened? Well, it, it, it's, it's complex why, why, that, why that defensive player has been able to break, break free. Maybe someone on the line has not done his job properly. He got a bit scared or a bit skittish because he saw this 350-pound man charging at him. Maybe it's the line coach's fault who hasn't properly trained the particular offensive lineman. Maybe it's actually a contract discussion because the guy who should have been playing in that position is sitting at home because he's trying to renegotiate a new contract and wants $10 million more. And so an inferior player is playing in that position. No one really knows why this has happened. But the issue still at hand is, is someone prepared to step up and pay the price in order for the team to win? Well, we're going to find out in about three seconds when the receiver becomes open. We're all facing a very similar kind of set of circumstances and questions with our political situation right now in, in, in the city. We've just voted recently on, on, on Alderman and, and the mayor. Uh, uh, the mayor. How do you say it in America? Mayor. The mayor. The mayor. The mayor, mayoral, mayoral. The mayoral elections. We've just been voting on those, and we're going to be facing a new set of, 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 of uh, uh, elections in, in, in the coming weeks. And I guarantee for, at the forefront of the issues that we're going to be faced is the issues of budget deficit. We live in a state where the state budget deficit, I think I got this accurately from Cranes, is $9 billion. I saw yesterday on Twitter, CPS, Chicago Public Schools, not the city of Chicago, Chicago Public Schools budget deficit, $1.1 billion. It's complex, isn't it? Why is that the case? Who knows? It's a, complicated, it's a complicated set of situations and circumstances. But who's going to pay the price? Who's going to step up and, 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 and absorb that cost? The politicians will tell you it's going to be you and me that are going to have to absorb the cost. They're going to reduce our services and increase our taxes. And what is our response? No, it's not right. We didn't cause the issue. We didn't make it happen. And friends, that was the same issue that the disciples had when they faced the set of circumstances about, uh, about Jesus just about to wash his disciples' feet. They refused to, to step up and to pay the price. It was normal. It was considered appropriate for the slave in a house to wash the feet of house guests who came in off the dusty and dirty streets of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it was, a, it was a task considered so menial and so degrading that it was actually outlawed for Jewish slaves to wash house guests' feet. It was a task left for Gentile slaves only. But the situation we find ourselves in right here is this is a borrowed room. Jesus has told his disciples to set up in the upper room. There is no house slave who can do the task. And so they're looking around to one another as to who's going to do it. Who's going to pay the price? Who's going to take the knock? Who's going to step up and for the benefit of everyone else be willing to wash each other's feet? Can you imagine the awkward silence as everyone's kind of looking around wondering who's going to do it? You've all been in those situations, haven't you? Something needs to be done and someone's looking for a volunteer and everyone suddenly is looking at the roof and you know, perhaps off to the, not, not wanting to get anyone's eye or catch anyone's attention. If you've had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I remember once 
<laughs> Maybe I shouldn't admit this. I remember once lying in bed. I've, actually, not once. I've done this multiple times. Lying in bed, and, and one of the kids starts crying when they were younger, and then suddenly you are dead asleep. You lie. You lie dead still. I mean, you don't want even one muscle to twitch. Don't leave, Taylor. I know you do it, Taylor. I know you do. <laughs> don't, that, that's guilt. That's guilt leading you out right now. <laughs> But we've all been there where, we've, where we're lying in bed and we don't want one muscle to twitch because if one muscle twitches, your wife will know that you're awake and just say, babe, won't you go and, and just check on one of the kids for, for me? That's exactly what's happening here. That's, that's, right, that, that's what's going on in this situation. Disciples looking around thinking, well, I, I, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm not prepared to step up and, and do that awful task of washing the disciples' feet. So what does Jesus do? Jesus lets the situation go on a bit. He creates, he's patiently just lets the the awkwardness build in the room. And then look at verse 4. So, or eventually, Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, just like a slave would. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is not really just about washing disciples' feet, is it? This is not just about uh, Jesus saying, all right, I'm going to clean your feet because your feet are dirty. No, this is, this is Jesus saying, I'm going to step up and take the hit because of the sins of the world. I'm going to be the one who's going to, who's going to pay the price so that everyone else is able to live in the freedom that comes with me paying that once and for all sacrifice. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Why do we have all these endless questions that sometimes can't be answered? Where is the moral fabric in our society? Well, friends, the answer is complex. There's a number of reasons why that is. Multiple, we we could debate that for years. But Jesus says, I don't really care who is to blame. I'm saying I'm stepping up. I'm prepared to pay the price. I'm prepared to lay my life down once and for all so that everyone else, is able, those who believe in me, is able to walk in the freedom that my death will bring. Who is this king of glory? The disciples have been asking. Well, let me tell you, he's the king who came as a servant, just like they knew in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, Isaiah 53 says, a man of suffering. And familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Because Jesus took the price, you and I get to win. Because Jesus was prepared to pay the price, you and I are set free. You and I are considered righteous. You and I are considered to be children of God. You and I are free from that need to have to perform for the, for, for the audience of others. You and I are free from those past mistakes that we've made. Free from the shame and the guilt that we've had. Righteousness, peace, and joy is ours in the Holy Spirit. Because we are now part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus was prepared to stoop down. 
and lay down his life so that you and I could walk into freedom. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy of you and us experiencing this liberty, Jesus was prepared to endure the cross. In verse 6, the story continues. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And that literally is the emphasis given in the original text. Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. I don't want to focus on this, but I just need need to mention it. Verse 10 references two aspects of washing or cleansing. The first one is a reference to a bath. My understanding of that is Jesus is referring to salvation. The first time we receive Jesus into our hearts as Lord and Savior, we are born again by the Spirit of God. We are are set free. We are redeemed. We are justified. Whatever terms that we want to use. Always, Always knowing we are children of God. Friends, that's never lost. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says we need, to be, we need to bath, a once and for all experience. But Jesus is also saying there are subsequent washings, the washings of the dirt of life and mistakes and sometimes wrong thinking of who we are in Christ. We forget the reality of, of who we are and so we, we, we say silly, silly things and we do stupid things and we make mistakes and we think the wrong way. That's the day today walking by the Spirit and receiving the privilege of the gift of repentance, which simply is to say, Jesus, help me to come back to that place of thinking the way you think about me. That's what Jesus is referring to here. But what I want you to notice is Peter's pride. Are you going to wash my feet? In this instance, Peter wasn't asking, who is this king of glory? Peter was asking, where is this king of glory? Jesus, what are you doing down at my feet? That's what he was asking. Friends, grace has to be received. In order for it to have effect, we have to find, it, find a way in our hearts to, to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that we cannot do it alone. Grace comes at us in various ways, in various forms. There is, there is grace that is needed to, to, to receive Jesus into our hearts as Lord and Savior. Perhaps some of you here today do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you've, you've tried to find meaning and purpose in your life. I want to say, friends, you will look until eternity comes, because the only way to the Father is through Jesus. It is a free gift given to us from Him to receive the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. We need to acknowledge that we cannot do it alone and put our faith in Jesus. That's grace. But friends, it takes just as much humility, just as much brokenness for those of us who are children of God, who've messed up and made mistakes along the way, and we think to ourselves, God would never want me. God would disown me. We have to acknowledge, we have to humble our hearts and say, God, would you pour out your grace? 
and let's get away from the issue of sin. Maybe you're just serving God. Maybe you're just doing the things that God has called you to do, and it is overwhelming and, and, and causing your heart to become troubled. You need grace for that too. We need to be able to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need help. And we live in a society and a culture that doesn't want us to do that. Just like I spoke about this game. In order to succeed, in order to win, I want to win on my own. I want to do it alone. I want to prove to the world that I can do it. That's not the way of the scriptures. I was telling some friends yesterday that a couple years ago, I was having breakfast at Nookie's on Halstead. And I was walking to the restaurant. This is just a description of the culture in which we live. I was walking to the restaurant and I saw a guy kind of rummaging through his pockets looking for 25 cents to feed the the red-eye newspaper thing so he could grab a newspaper. And uh, he was rummaging in his pockets and I had, funnily enough, was just kind of flicking, uh, playing around with a quarter. And as I walked past him, I said, here we go. And I just gave it to him. A quarter, 25 cents. Didn't break the bank. Didn't have to go to the bank to withdraw it. Didn't have to take out a loan. Had it in my pocket, 25 cents. I give the guy 25 cents so he can buy himself a newspaper. Do you know that 15 minutes later, that guy came to find me? 15 minutes later, he had got that 25 cents. He took the effort to go to his car to find another quarter and then to walk down Holstead to find me where I was, to give me 25 cents because he did not feel it was appropriate to receive a free gift for nothing. That's the culture we live in, friends. That's our hearts sometimes. If we're honest with ourselves, we need to be prepared to humble our hearts and say, Jesus, I need your grace. Grace will not have any effect in our lives until we take up that posture of humility. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, we nearly finished. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor, his, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them too. Friends, this is not just a passage that speaks about Jesus' incredible sacrifice for us. But this is, this is also an example for you and I to follow. This is also an example for, for us to say, okay, if Jesus can serve one another, then so can I serve other people too. We can't say, this is not for me. Why? Because Jesus did it. And he gave it to us as an example. I want you to notice in verse 17 that Jesus promises the blessing. Now that you know these things, he says, you will be blessed if you do them. There are three ways we can respond to the word of God. We can not hear it and therefore not obey. We can hear it, but then choose not to obey. Or we can hear and obey. And Jesus is saying, friends, the blessing is reserved only for that third group. If you are willing to hear and obey. Sometimes we, we get before God and we read his word in the morning. Sometimes we might even, maybe even today, you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I'm blessed by that sermon. I want to say, no, you're not. You're not blessed by the sermon until you are willing to put it into practice. You are not blessed by the sermon. You are not blessed by the word of God until you somehow 
Challenge yourself by the power and strength of the Holy Spirit to get this word into us and so that we can go and put it into practice. Nate and Nancy led us this morning. Let us not just sing these songs, Lord. Send us out. Send us out. These challenges that come from the book of John need to get into our hearts. We will only be blessed if we put them into practice. So, how do we respond practically? Three things that I want to leave you with. Three little handles. Things that you can do as you go from this place. Or things that you can think about. Things that you can put into practice. How do we respond? Number one, serving others isn't possible without knowing who you are in Christ. Now, serving others is possible without knowing that. But it's not possible to, to in, a, in such a way that it would bring about change in others and it would bring about liberty and freedom in you. Serving is only possible if we know who we are in Christ. Why do I say that? Because if we don't know who we are in Christ, we will look to the act of serving or we will look to those being served to bring us definition and worth and value. Only if we are secure in who we are in Christ will we be able to truly serve others. Look at, look at verse 3 with me if you wouldn't mind. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got down and washed his disciples' feet. Friends, that also describes us. In Christ, we have all things we need for life and godliness. We, are, we, have, been, we have been born of God and we are returning to God. And so, friends, I want to say, secure in our knowledge in who we are, we are able to serve one another. Secondly, serving is primarily an act of love, not an act of duty or responsibility. And I hope the second part of verse 1 emphasized that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Service is not an act of duty or responsibility. It is an act of love. And then lastly, the impact of being a servant is actually limitless. And I want to steal a verse from Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22 is the passage where Ezekiel hears the word of the Lord looking for someone who is prepared to serve the city by standing in the gap as an intercessor. And he says, I looked for someone who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. That verse challenges me because by implication, if God had found one person willing to serve the city, he would have saved an entire city. Friends, one act of service, one person serving as an act of love to our city, whatever that means, can change and transform a city and see the kingdom of God come here and now. The act of serving, the opportunity to serve, is absolutely limitless. As a, before I bring James up to, to land and kind of help us with some ministry, I just felt this morning three specific areas that I wanted to just encourage or challenge us with that maybe we can respond to today and, and maybe minister and pray, over, pray, pray for one another. I spoke about the importance of us humbling our hearts in order to receive the grace of God. In order for grace to work, we need to say, God, I need your grace. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And today there is this, perhaps this tugging or this pulling in your heart. You don't fully understand it. You don't fully comprehend all the realities and, and the teachings of Scripture. But there is something in your heart that says, I want to know God. I want to say, friends, today is the day for salvation. Today is, the, is, the, is an opportunity for you to humble your heart and to say, God, I, I, I don't want to look to myself any longer for worth and purpose and identity, but I want to put my trust and my faith in you. I want you to think about that if that is you, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Secondly, perhaps you are a child of God, but you are, are, are maybe caught up in, a, in, in sin or struggling with, with your mindset and thinking poor thinking wrong thoughts about yourself, not clear as to who you are in Christ because that establishes us to be able to serve God with all of our hearts. Maybe you've done things that you're ashamed of, battling with guilt and shame. I want to say, friends, today the grace of God is available to you. Self-righteousness gets in the way. Self-reliance, self-effort gets in the way of God being able to minister to us. Perhaps today you're saying, God, would you fill me with your mercy and grace? Or thirdly, perhaps you're here today and you're serving God faithfully. You're serving God faithfully, but you're tired. You're overwhelmed. You're, you're exhausted. Whatever, whatever, that, whatever other adjectives are appropriate for that, set of, that, that scenario. You're serving God faithfully, but you just need the empowering of God. Maybe today is the day you can stand and say, God, would you fill me with your grace? Would you fill me with your power? I need your strength and help. So I'm going to ask you very quickly, if, that's, if you fall into one of those three categories, can I ask that you stand right now? I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to allow James just to uh, kind of extend the ministry. If you identify with any one of those three categories, Father, I just pray in Jesus' name as, as people are standing across the room, Lord, you know, you know the challenge. You know the, the issues of their lives. You know the struggles of their hearts. You know, Lord God, the, 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 the circumstances that they are facing. I thank you, Father, that, that you have not turned your face from them. Jesus, just like we learned this morning that, that, that you loved your disciples to the very end, thank you that you love us in exactly the same way, completely unconditionally, totally. You, you love us to that extent. Lord, thank you that your word says that, that, that what can separate us or who can separate us from the love of God? Shall, shall, shall death or hardship or struggle or difficulty or sin Separate us from God's love? No. In all of these things, we are, we are more than conquerors through, through Him who loved us. Thank you, Jesus, that, that no sin, no, no sickness, no disease, no, no difficult situation at work, no, no financial struggle can ever separate us from the reality and truth of your love. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that your love and your grace and your compassion would just fill hearts right now in Jesus' name. I ask, Lord God, for a release of your love. I ask, Lord God, for a release of your grace. I ask, Lord God, for a release of your mercy and your kindness and your compassion just to envelop us and to overwhelm us even, Lord God. I pray for those who are standing today to receive you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. If that's you, I just right now where you're standing, just I want you to just say, God, God, would you... Would thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Jesus, would you come into my heart? I receive the free gift that is you. And I ask that you come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Thank you that you paid the price on the cross. Thank you that you have set me free. Thank you that you paid the price. You took the hit so that I can be totally free. 
I receive you now. I give you my life. All that I have is yours. But I thank you that more importantly, all that you have is mine. In you, Jesus. I just receive that right now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you just extend your grace upon your precious people this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.